And I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16 this morning. Last week, which was last year, and by some reckonings last decade, we concluded our study of the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, that great big final teaching on eschatology, the doctrine of last things, Jesus' own teaching on Jesus' own return. And now we're turning to chapter 26, and in chapter 26 we turn the corner back into the crucial events of that crucial week that we often call Passion Week or Holy Week. We've just been singing about it, right, with Man of Sorrows and Praise the Savior. We sing about it every week, in fact, because it's just that important. We've actually been in Matthew walking through the events of this crucial week since the month of July. That's when we hit the triumphal entry, and here we are just now getting to the middle of the week. These events are worthy of our close study and careful consideration, especially for application, for what they mean for our lives today. These crucial events are at the center of the gospel that we believe. So here's the title for today's message. I've stolen it from verse 10. I want to call it, A beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. Because in today's passage, a woman does to Jesus what Jesus calls a beautiful thing. That's not how everybody in the story sees it, but that's how Jesus sees it. And how Jesus sees something is the right way to see a thing. Amen? A beautiful thing. You know, there's actually really two beautiful things in this passage. And there are at least two really ugly things in our story as well. And as we read it, we'll also see there are two major prophecies from the Lord Jesus. One prophecy that has already come to pass. We just said that His words will never pass away. Well, One of His prophecies come, has already come to pass. And one of His prophecies that He's going to give in this text is going to come to pass, ready? In this very room, right here today. How's that for a prediction? Do you want to do that? Do you want to fulfill a prophecy of Jesus this very morning in this very room? Let's pray together, and then we'll do it. Let's pray. Praise the Savior. Praise the King. We're going to sing that for all eternity from our hearts because we're going to feel it for all eternity. We were lost, dead in sin. And Jesus said, I will claim them. When we said we couldn't pay it, He said, I will pay it. It's finished. The debt is paid in full. We were lost. We were alone. He came and got us. We have everything because we have this gospel. Help us, Lord, to see it and from it to do beautiful things. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Now, remember that Matthew did not put these verse numbers in his book. That great big 26 that you see on your page is there to help us find it, but Matthew didn't put it there. Matthew, when he wrote it, just flowed right from chapter 25 right into chapter 26. He flowed right from the Son of Man judging all the nations like a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats right into these very words. Matthew 26, verse 1. Look at it. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, the Olivet Discourse, he said to his disciples, 
as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. What an amazing end to this end times teaching. Jesus has just said that the Son of Man, same word, same title, the Son of Man is going to come in all of His glory with all of His angels and sit on His glorious throne. Remember that from last week? I know it was last year. It was so long ago, right? He just said that. That's ringing in their ears. And in almost the very next breath, He says that that Son of Man is going to be handed over to be crucified this week. The judge of all the nations is going to be judged himself. And he's going to be found guilty. And he's going to be executed on a cross. Now, I know that we know this already, but this is, this is utterly incredible. The crucial events of this week are incredibly strange, are they not? They are incredibly ironic. They are incredibly upside down. This shouldn't be the way it is. This, how is this going to happen? Nobody would ever come up with this story if it weren't true. The Son of Man, from the book of Daniel, the one that gets the kingdom from the ancient of days and is going to come and bring that kingdom, the Son of Man is going to be handed over to be crucified? Here's the first strangely beautiful thing that I want to point out to you. Jesus knows this. And Jesus is choosing it. It's one thing that we all know it today in hindsight, right? It's a whole nother thing that Jesus knew it with foresight. What day is this in Holy Week? I believe it's Tuesday of Passion Week. Sunday he comes in on the donkey. Monday there's the controversy in the temple. Tuesday he is mainly this eschatological end times teaching and when he says all this he ends all this and he says this passover is going to happen on thursday it's two days away let me ask you a question if you knew that you were scheduled to be executed in state college in two days what would you do today i don't know about you but i'd be getting in my minivan and headed west towards chicago on route 80 right But Jesus hangs around town. Jesus knows what's going on. Jesus is choosing it. And that's a beautiful thing for us. In just a few minutes, we're going to go to this table and remember Jesus' crucifixion. We're actually going to do it next week, too. Because I expect to get to the Lord's Supper here in Matthew 26 and it would be a missed opportunity to preach it and not practice it on that Sunday. So whatever you might do to prepare your hearts for communion on the first Sunday of the month, do that to be here for next Sunday. In a few minutes, we're going to go down to this table here and we're going to remember what Jesus did for us on Calvary. And when we do that, we need to remember that he chose it. Eyes wide open. Isn't something that just happened to him? It, it didn't take him by surprise. He didn't get caught up in it. He didn't just walk into it. He walked to it. And he told his disciples that it was coming.
And for us, that's a beautiful thing. So here's the first ugly thing in today's story. I think it happens actually on the very next day, on Wednesday. What Jesus does on Wednesday is very quiet. If you follow the Gospels, there's not much said about what he did. Maybe he he rested. He's been up to a lot, and he knows a lot is coming. But this happens, a conspiracy, a devious plot. Look at verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. And I love that Matthew tells us that it's Jesus' plan before he tells us that it's these guys' plan. So that we don't get this idea that they are truly in charge. They think they're in charge, but we know better. They can't do a thing, even such an evil thing, that doesn't somehow conform to the grand plan of God. But it is an evil thing that they plan. They plan a murder. They plan an assassination of an innocent man. This is the first time in a long time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is not center stage. Jesus isn't here in this scene, is he? He's... He's back there with his disciples somewhere, and here we're taken to another place. We're taken to Caiaphas's palace, Caiaphas's house. Caiaphas was the son of the last high priest uh, who had been named high priest by Rome by that governor Quirinius that we always hear about on Christmas Eve. Interestingly, in 1990, archaeologists uncovered what they think may be Caiaphas's house and maybe even discovered the box, the ossuary, that his bones were buried in. It's that old, and it has his name on it. So we actually might have Caiaphas in a box somewhere. Caiaphas was the high priest. And with him were the chief priests and the elders. This is the rulers. These are the leaders. But they are not leading the nation for God and for good. They are doing evil. They are plotting to arrest and secretly kill Jesus. Just let that sink in. I mean, just that sentence. They're plotting to arrest and secretly kill Jesus. The religious people, the church people, the folks with the whitest of the white hats, the people that everybody looks to for leadership, they say, what can we do to get rid of him? Verse 5, but not during the feast, they said. Uh, not the, during the feast. Or there may be a riot among the people. So they want to wait a week. They want to wait a, uh, until the big holiday crowds go home. You remember back in July when we did the triumphal entry, we found out that thousands of people came from all over for Passover. So the city's just people elbow to elbow everywhere, right? All, all the time. And Jesus has been popular, too popular in their estimation, and they don't want to stir something up. So question, do they get their wish? Well, they do get to kill Jesus. But they don't get to do it when they wanted. I think that's so ironic. When do they get to kill Jesus? On the day Jesus said they could. I wonder who's really in charge here. Now here's the story of the beautiful thing. It's actually a few days back in time. This is kind of like a flashback. 
If you track this event in the other Gospels, John tells us that it actually happened before the triumphal entry. Spencer, if you're making it in a movie, it's like a white screen, and then all of a sudden the color's a little bit different. This happened at a different time, and there's all these clues that we know. This happened at a different time. That's how you do it, right? Sure, he says. Thumbs up. Yeah. So this actually happened like the day before the triumphal entry. Why does Matthew place it here? We don't know. He doesn't say. But I think that Matthew places it here in his book to juxtapose it with what Judas does in the very next story. Regardless, it happened, and it was a beautiful thing. Verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany at the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now that's really something that Jesus is in the home of a guy named Simon the leper. (laughs) I mean, if he's still a leper, Jesus is disobeying the Mosaic law. But it probably means that Simon used to be a leper. Simon is now healed. Hmm, I wonder who might have done that. And at this home in Bethany, this woman comes to Jesus with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume and she pours it on the head of Jesus as he's reclining at the table. This is an amazing thing. Don't let your eyes just pass over it. Now see, they don't have these tall tables with chairs like we do. It's certainly not like at the Last Supper, Da Vinci's Last Supper, where it's this tall table, they're all sitting behind it and uh, they're all sitting on one side of it. That's not how it was at all. They had tiny little tables that were low to the ground. And they had these like mats or little cots kind of thing that they would recline at, lay at, like spokes around a wheel. So they're all kind of facing in at the table in, in a circle. You get the picture in your head? Okay, so that, that's, what, that's, how they, that's how they had a feast. Okay, so this woman, John's gospel tells us her name. Matthew doesn't. Does anybody know who it is? Mary, that's right. It's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. I wonder if Simon the leper was their father. doesn't say, so we don't know. But Matthew just says the woman, so we'll call her today the woman. This woman steps past Jesus' feet, and she probably breaks the head off the alabaster stone jar. That's, it's kind of been stored in this jar now, and she breaks the head off of it. And she begins to pour this stuff on Jesus' head. And then the rest of the Gospels say that she proceeded to pour it on his whole body down to his feet. This whole jar of perfume is poured out. Can you imagine the smell? Now, I don't have a very good sense of smell. My nose was broken in junior high in a wrestling accident. Last time I ever wrestled. (laughs) I don't smell things very good. My my nose was broken and I went to the, the, uh, the... gym teacher and he said to suck it up and deal with it kind of you know get with the program Mitchell I'm like no coach I think my nose is broken (laughs) so I don't smell things but I could have smelled this in fact you would you would probably never stop smelling this have you ever poured out an entire jar of perfume no you haven't one thing is your perfume's too expensive right Another is the smell. Oh. Now, we don't have anything like this in our culture. Anointing somebody, perfuming somebody was something they did. This was in an age before deodorant, by the way. 
Okay? So perfumes and smells were important. It was helpful. Think about Matthew, uh, Psalm 23. He anoints my head with oil, right? So this is a normal thing for them. It's not normal for us. It's not like pouring Gatorade on your coach after the big game. Uh, it, there's really nothing like it. It's an act of anointing. It's actually, uh, you remember Psalm 133? Where, where the psalmist says that God's blessing of unity is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. Aaron just covered in oily goo. It's full immersion in this fragrant liquid. Okay? I think the big thing is that it's costly. Matthew tells us here that it was very expensive perfume. How expensive was it? Well, Mark tells us that it was worth, ready? More than a year's wages. How much do you make in a year? What are you scheduled to make in 2020? Imagine having that much money saved up in a savings account at the bank, okay? And on Saturday morning, right after the bank opens, you walk in the door and you ask for the whole thing, right? The teller on the other side of the, corner of the counter winces at the thought of just handing you your big lump sum, a year's wages saved in your account. Maybe it's Becky Hubler or Chastity Sankey. And they, they go and they talk to the branch manager and they're like, um, they, they want the whole thing. They want the whole thing. They want the whole thing. The branch manager comes out and they, they say, uh, <clears throat> would you like to come into my office? Uh, I understand that you want a cashier's check for your whole savings account. Uh, do you know the total in there? That's about a whole year's wages. And you indicate, yes, yes, I would like that, please. And so the branch manager says, well, yeah, I don't want to pry. I mean, it's your money and uh, you can have it any time you want. Uh, I'll print out the check. But I'm curious. Are you taking your business elsewhere? Because if you are, I'd like to know if there's something about our service or our rates that's causing you to go somewhere else. And I'd like a chance to talk with you about getting you a better deal here. Now imagine you look her square in the eye and you say, Oh no, I've been more than pleased with the service here. You have a great bank, but today I'm going to use my one year's wages. Oh, I see. Are you buying a house with cash? That's wonderful. Or two SUVs. No, no, see, I'm going to buy a vial of perfume. You're going to buy a vat of perfume? No, no, I'm going to buy a, a vial. It's a fairly small, about half a liter, 11 ounces. You're going to buy a year's salary worth of perfume today? 11 ounces? That's right. Is my check ready? Oh, just one more question before you go. Um, what are you going to do with that perfume? Is this some kind of an investment? Oh, yeah, I guess you could call it an, uh, an investment, something like that. I plan, after I get this bottle of perfume, to break the top off of it and pour it out on somebody today. What? Who could be worth that? You see? Now, 
she might not have bought it this day. We don't know. In fact, it's more, more likely it was a family heirloom, maybe even passed down from generation to generation. If worn, it was maybe just a little touch. Probably never worn. Probably it was the family's wealth stored up, the family fortune. What we do know is that she poured that fortune all out on Jesus that day. What a woman. By the way, the women in Matthew's gospel are the best disciples. They're often overlooked, but they are consistently the most faithful and greatest role models for our discipleship today. Never underestimate a woman who is a true disciple of Jesus Christ. But that's exactly what the male disciples do at this moment. And I think they underestimate Jesus at the same time. Verse 8. When the disciples saw this, pouring out this expensive perfume on Jesus, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Now, of course, they have a point. She could have sold this stuff and given the money to the poor, and that would have been a good thing. Not a bad thing to do at all. We should regularly be taking stock of what we have and ask if we're leveraging it in the right ways, especially in regards to the poor. Matthew has just finished narrating Jesus' story about the king who said that when we do generous things for the least of these, his brothers, we are doing it for him, including feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, sheltering the homeless. Let's be doing that. But the disciples were missing something here. They ask, why this waste? They don't see what's truly happened. But Jesus did. Sopping, wet, with redolent scent, he says, verse 10, aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The CSB has a noble thing. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. This is not an act of waste. This is worship. That's what worship is, you know. Our English word comes from worth-ship. Worship is an act of sh- of sh- that shows the value that you place on something. So if you put all of your money or all of your time into something, you can probably say that you're worshiping it. If you do nothing but work, 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 especially when you don't have to, you can be worshiping your work instead of worshiping with your work. If you spend all of your time and your money on sports or hunting or reading books or whatever is your hobby, it could be properly said that you worship your hobby. Some people worship their families. Worship is whatever you do to indicate the ultimate worth of something to you. This woman, with her lavish act, was saying that Jesus was worth everything to her. So this is a great question to start a new year and a new decade with. What is Jesus worth to you? And how do you show it?
What is Jesus worth to you in 2020? And how can you demonstrate it? Are you surprised that Jesus makes this all about him? This is the Gospel of Matthew, after all, so we need to what? Keep our eyes on the ball. The disciples had their eyes on the perfume. They had their eyes on the money. The other Gospels tell us that Judas was the primary one who objected here. No wonder he was the treasurer and he was the traitor. But they all agreed. This was a waste. But Jesus says it wasn't a waste. Yes, we should serve the poor, but they'll always be here. But you have a limited window here and a unique opportunity here because Jesus himself is here. The poor you always have with you, but you will not always have me. That's why this is a beautiful thing. That's why this is costly worship. That's why this is extravagant worship. And catch this. This is the most important thing. Jesus believes that he is worth it. What's amazing here in this story is that Jesus does not stop her, isn't it? Jesus doesn't demure. He doesn't say, oh, no, 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 no. Let's not do that. Thanks, but, you know, keep your alabaster jar. Keep your perfume. You need that. Your family might need that. He doesn't say, you know what? You're right. We should go serve the poor. Turn that into cash and go open up a shelter. No, Jesus basically says, thank you. I deserve that. Thank you. That's appropriate. What is Jesus worth to you in 2020? And how are you planning to show it? What are you planning to do with your money, your time, your treasures, your relationships, everything that is of value to you to show that Jesus is your ultimate treasure? I think maybe we all ought to spend some time today answering that question for ourselves. Jesus is not expecting us to get out our life savings at the bank and buy a a jar of perfume and pour it out on him. We can't. He's not here physically. But he does expect and deserve our worship. What beautiful things might we do as a church family in 2020 to show the world that Jesus is worthy? Here's a good way to get at this. What are you doing or planning to do that others might say, what a waste if they don't see how worthy Jesus is? Let me suggest that if there's nothing in your life that an unbeliever would shake their head at, then you need new priorities for a new year. Because Jesus should be our number one priority. The poor you'll always have with you, but you will not always have me. Verse 12. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. She might not have known that that's what she was doing. But Jesus did. Jesus knows that he is the Messiah. What, what does that mean? What, translate Messiah into English for me. Anointed one. And here his anointing is not to do battle like King David, with a slingshot or a sword. This anointing was to do battle by dying on the cross. He says, she did it to prepare me for burial. Because Jesus' victory begins with his death. Verse 13, I tell you the truth. 
Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Do you see it? We just did it. We just fulfilled prophecy just right now in this very room. As we are preaching the gospel, we are telling this story of this woman and what she did in memory of her. And we're saying this is the opposite of waste. It's a timeless act of worship, appropriate to who he is. Worthy of retelling and retelling and retelling so that all generations throughout the world know that Jesus is worth it all. And here we're doing it right now. Her act of extravagant worship is a blessing to the world. And that's a beautiful thing. What acts of beautiful, extravagant worship might you and I do to be a blessing to this world in 2020? This woman valued Jesus highly. Sadly, Judas valued Jesus lowly. Here's our last ugly thing, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, what a phrase, the one called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests, from verses 3 through 5, and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand them over to you? Same root word, handed over, from Jesus' prediction in verse 2. He knows this is coming. He even knows who's going to do it. So they counted out to him 30 silver coins. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This will move things up on the timetable from what they originally wanted. Before they were like, well, let's wait till the feast is over and things die down. But now they've got an inside man. An inside man who is a traitor, who has just valued Jesus at 30 silver coins, perhaps 120 days wages. The cost of replacing an ox. And this was not what Judas was willing to spend on Jesus. This is what Judas thought he could get for selling Jesus out. What is, Judas, what is Jesus worth to you? 